us to do something. In the last episode of Pello Talk, I shared a prime ministerial speech from 1988 by Bob Hawke. If you haven't seen it, please check it out for its patriotism and positive liberalism. Be excited by an Australian leader of the old Labor Party advocating liberty and supremacy of people over the state. How far we've come is what I said last week, and I'm thinking it again this week after Kevin Rudd. But this week I want to share highlights from a very recent Prime Ministerial speech. In fact, just the end of last month. Now, I'm not partisan. I'm no rusted-on voter for any party, and never have been, even when I was a member and office holder of the LNP. My only lasting loyalty is to Jesus Christ, and I look afresh for the best candidate to represent me at every election, so I can take a step back and call balls and strikes honestly from any politician and any party. Some are wrong, if not dangerous, to public policy more often than others, but none gets it right all the time. Scott Morrison may share the same faith as me, but giving him unconditional support because he's Christian would be as stupid as giving Barack Obama unconditional support because he's black. Both are identity politics. The ignorant philosophy that all individual members of any given identity group are incapable of different ideas and policies from that attributed to all members of their identity group. I don't want or need a Christian PM any more than I want or need a white PM. I want someone who will unrelentingly fight for the things I believe in, and their identity, or party for that matter, are entirely inconsequential. We have to cheer when our PM of any party does well, and boo when he or she doesn't. I want my city, state and nation to win more than I want my favourite political team to win. And that's accomplished by whoever's in the job doing the best job anyone could do. That's the standard. Scott Morrison has just given a speech which is worth cheering for, and other than perhaps his maiden speech, in which he debunked the myth that Australia is a secular nation, this one last week may have been the best speech he has ever given. One of the reasons it's so good is it's so overdue. Scott Morrison has a foot planted firmly in the left and the right of the Liberal National Coalition, and his cabinet picks, giving cold shoulders to many a better qualified Conservative Coalition MP, should prove he is willing to repay the political debts which helped him ascend to the Prime Minister's seat. It's that same transactional approach to his political career which makes it rare for him to champion policies and offer speeches which in turn earn the ire of the lying harlot media and radical leftists, who are never going to vote for him. For example, he has long ignored and ridiculed the reality of the culture war. In 2017, when he was still treasurer under Malcolm Turnbull, Scott Morrison rejected backbench calls to amend Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act claiming free speech wasn't important because it wouldn't reduce unemployment or help the economy. This was the legislation that saw conservative commentator Andrew Bolt criminalised for hurting people's feelings, about which Scott Morrison said, And I know this issue doesn't create one job, doesn't open one business, doesn't give anyone one extra hour, it doesn't um, reduce the cost of or, or make housing more affordable or energy more affordable. They're the issues that I'm focused on. Since becoming Prime Minister, he was asked by a journalist a year ago if he was concerned about the culture wars after the classic movie Gone with the Wind, along with other recent shows, were cancelled. His irritated response was a similar disinterest in the consequences of the social cancer violently dividing people on race, religion, politics and gender. On a modern extension of this issue we're seeing of cancel culture with Gone with the Wind, Chris Lilly's projects, for example, being pulled from streaming services, is that something you're worried about? I'm worried about jobs. I'm worried about 800,000 Australians going on to Job Seeker in the last three months. 
I'm not interested in what they're showing on streaming services. I'm interested in getting Australians back into work. I'm not interested in the debate about what people want to tear down. I'm interested in what people want to build up. And what we need to build back up are businesses and jobs. And we need to restore livelihoods and lives. Honestly, people, let's focus on what's really happening. Prime Minister Morrison claimed he is not interested in a debate about what people want to tear down, but was only interested in what people want to build up. The problem he has been willfully ignorant of is the people who want to tear everything down, everything people who built the West, the British Christian philosophies of justice and liberty, and the Australian constitution built up for the prosperity and peace we've enjoyed until the neo-Marxist green agenda got their grubby hands on it. These goblins want to tear down the timelessly universal definitions of marriage, family, gender, and even the objective nature of truth itself. Honestly, people, let's focus on what's really happening, Mr. Morrison said, as if the existential threats to the rule of law, justice, personal liberty, and the supremacy of people over ever-expanding state powers are not really happening right across Western democracies. It is the tearing down of the unity and cohesion which we have built up for 200 years, which toxic people want to tear down by reducing Australians to a collection of attributes. Radical leftists and so-called progressives are constantly seeking to tear us down by dividing us by gender, religion, and especially racially. Again, as he has for years, telling everyone to look at the economy, and jobs, as if culture is a mere distraction of no real consequence or harm to any Australian. He implied he could not walk and chew gum at the same time, could not worry about job losses caused by government and freedoms lost to government at the same time. That's certainly not the kind of Prime Minister I'm looking for. But there is cause for hope after his recent address to the United Israel Appeal Dinner in Sydney, in which Prime Minister Morrison took aim squarely at cancel culture and identity politics. It had glimpses of greatness, which should encourage us to continue praying for our civic leaders to govern with wisdom and justice from heaven. Links to the full speech and transcript are in the article for this episode on goodsource.news. Now let's review some clips from this very important speech in Scott Morrison's journey to becoming a statesman. And in his works, Rabbi Sachs wrestles, a bit like Jacob, wrestles with the practical complexities of our modern pluralistic world and finds through the tenets of his faith, as he did, a pathway to the common good. At the heart of our Judeo-Christian heritage are two words, human dignity. Everything else flows from this. And seeing the inherent dignity of all human beings is the foundation of morality. It makes us more capable of love and compassion, of selflessness and forgiveness, because if you see the dignity and worth of another person, another human being, the beating heart in front of you, you're less likely to disrespect them, insult or show contempt or hatred for them, or seek to cancel them as is becoming the fashion these days. Seeing the dignity in others means we can see others as imperfect people striving to do their best. And you know, in a liberal democracy, and there's no greater liberal democracy than the ones that are shared here and in Israel, human dignity is foundational to our freedom. It restrains government. It restrains our own actions and our own behavior because we act for others, not ourselves as you indeed do here this evening. That is the essence of morality. De Tocqueville agreed, he said, liberty cannot be established without morality, nor morality without faith. Hayek, the economist, said the same thing. Freedom has never worked without deeply ingrained moral beliefs. Acting to morally enhance the freedom of others ultimately serves to enhance our own freedom. So it's no surprise then that Rabbi Sachs concluded in his final work, morality, if you lose your own morality, 
you are in danger of losing your freedom. The implication here is very important. Liberty is not born of the state, but rests with the individual for whom morality must be a personal responsibility. In Lessons in Leadership, he quotes the distinguished American jurist, Judge Learned Hand, to argue his point, who said, I often wonder whether we do not rest our hopes too much upon constitutions, upon laws and upon courts. He said, believe me, these are false hopes. He said, liberty lies in the hearts of men and women, and when it dies there, no constitution, no law can save it. Freedom, therefore, rests on us taking personal responsibility for how we treat each other, based on our respect for and our appreciation of human dignity. This is not about state power. This is not about market power. This is about morality and personal responsibility. Where we once understood our rights in terms of our protections from the state... Now it seems these rights are increasingly defined by what we expect from the state. As citizens, we cannot allow what we think we are entitled to to become more important than what we are responsible for as citizens. In short, to realise true community, we must first appreciate each individual human being matters. You matter. You, individually. And in this context, I would also argue we must protect against those forces that would undermine that in community. And I don't just mean, as I've recently remarked, the social and moral corrosion caused by the misuse of social media and the abuse that occurs there. But I would say it also includes the growing tendency to commodify human beings through identity politics. We must never surrender the truth that the experience and value of every human being is unique and personal. You are more, we are more individually, more than the things others try to identify us by, you by, in this age of identity politics. You are more than your gender. You are more than your race. You are more than your sexuality. You are more than your ethnicity. You are more than your religion, your language group, your age. All of these, of course, contribute to who we may be and the incredible diversity of our society, particularly in this country and our place in the world. But of themselves, they are not the essence of our humanity. When we reduce ourselves to a collection of attributes or divide ourselves even worse on this basis, we can lose sight of who we actually are as individual human beings. In all our complexity in all our wholeness and in all our wonder. We then define each other if we go down that other path by the boxes we tick or don't tick rather than our qualities, skills and character. And we fail to see the value that other people hold as individuals with real agency and responsibility. Throughout history, We've seen what happens when people are defined solely by the group they belong to or an attribute they have or an identity they possess. What we need is not to disagree less in a liberal democracy like Australia. We just need to disagree better. Hear, hear. Disagreement isn't something to shy away from or fear. And that's a lesson many churches could learn who fear preaching on topics which are publicly debated, even though God's Word speaks directly to many such topics and congregants overwhelmingly desire to be taught by the pulpit instead of the lying harlot media. We need to disagree well, and that's done by pursuing truth instead of partisan politics. Who should be more capable of disagreeing better than believers in objective truth and the moral law giver? Of course, no one is more afraid of disagreement than a radical leftist who seeks to censor and cancel rather than engage civilly and sincerely. Let's never be that guy. Prime Minister Scott Morrison has finally observed cancel culture has become fashionable, with small minds demanding dissenters be stripped of Order of Australia awards, conservatives be banned from holding conferences, 
Christians be banned from public office, and unapproved opinions be banned from social media, like Donald Trump and Craig Kelly. Mr. Morrison rejected the progressive preference to define people by immutable traits they had no control over, rather than their character and convictions, and identified such a political philosophy has had broadly lethal results in recent world history. One word stood out to me in this speech, which I don't think I'm reading too much into if I place great importance on its subtle inclusion. Morrison said there is a, quote, tendency to commodify human beings through identity politics. Bravo. Precisely. Those grievance industries and organisations which purport to be able to solve social problems but have a perversely profitable interest in perpetuating and then amplifying them are effectively commodifying human beings, trading on their continuing misery in exchange for taxpayer funding. The various anti-discrimination tribunals make a mockery of the justice system and legitimise the weaponization of law. The blacktivists who blame the over-representation of indigenous people in custody on alleged systemic racism rather than the overrepresentation of indigenous people in the commission of violent crimes ensure racial harmony is further away than it ever has been. The family violence industry has no interest in male victims or perpetrators who are female or black. There is no authentic interest in a breakout of universal real justice in any of these or a myriad of other groups and industries who have commodified identity politics and would go broke without the resentment they nourish. Well said, ScoMo, and thank you. This speech was a good start if ScoMo is finally growing the bold convictions one should be able to expect from a Christian conservative. His future speeches and decisions will test if there is to be a new trend in the right direction, or if this is just a flash in the pan for someone who has otherwise shrewdly protected his career ambitions thus far, while being content to be just a little better than the alternatives. Look, speaking of identity politics and voting for a man just because he takes a lot of photo ops outside a church every Sunday morning when campaigning, Kevin Rudd has written in the leftist blog, The Guardian, how afraid he is of the Christian church growing its influence on the fabric of Australian society. You know, it's almost like he doesn't believe God is perfect and the most perfect kind of kingdom imaginable is God's. This man campaigned at least partially relying on his claim to identify as a Christian, which is literally identity politics. He is now confessing Christianity should not influence society, let alone politics. In yesterday's episode of The Other Side Australia, hosted here on the Good Source platform, Damien Curry brilliantly destroyed Kevin Rudd and exposed him as a fake Christian whose only faith is in big government and who derives his sense of morality from the state. Watch this. Now, ScoMo gave another speech a few days earlier at the National Conference of the Australian Christian Churches on Queensland's Gold Coast, where he spoke more about his personal faith. That speech saw the left get the knives out as they began to question his religious beliefs and the impact they're having on his governing. Kevin Rudd, no less, wrote in the left-wing newspaper The Guardian this week that, quote, there is a troubling section of Morrison's speech where he indicates that humans aren't capable of fixing problems on earth. Instead, he says, that's the responsibility of God and what the country needs, therefore, is the growth of the church. The problem with this approach, says Rudd, is that it effectively consigns responsibility for poverty and the despoilation of the planet to powers beyond our control as we drift to a utopian afterlife. It diminishes the role of human agency in fixing social and economic injustices. I don't know, Kevin. Listening to ScoMo's speech and looking at his life's work would suggest that he certainly believes in the role humans have to play in fixing social and economic injustices. It's not a case of humans being able to fix everything 100% or leaving everything to God 100%. Believing God will take care of everything, doing nothing and just praying 
was not the teaching of Jesus, I don't think, and I'm pretty sure it's not the teaching of the Pentecostal religions, as your editorial suggests. But likewise, believing man can fix everything 100% is an equally dangerous fallacy. A little humility and restraint from time to time doesn't hurt. On the right side of politics, we believe in the individual and small community defining the best balance between doing something and leaving things alone, rather than the state always intervening. As the Prime Minister just said, that is best built upon a morality derived from individuals, family and small community. Big government and the state are far more likely to pervert morality with a centralised, detached, elite group of leaders and bureaucrats making rules on behalf of the many. The repeated utter failure of Marxism in the 20th century and the success of free market capitalism are a testament that we're on the right track. We don't want to be getting our values and sense of morality from the institutions of state. Our humanity doesn't lie there. It lies in our soul, our family and our community, and for many Australians of many faiths, in their religion and spirituality. Get the whole episode from Damien every week on the Good Source website, podcast and YouTube channel. Caitlyn Jenner, formerly known as Bruce, is a biological man who has been widely celebrated by woke folk for his bravery in admitting he is confused about his gender. He won Glamour magazine's 2015 Woman of the Year award for his work as a, quote, trans champion, end quote. Sports media giant ESPN awarded him with the Arthur Ashe Courage Award in the same year's annual awards show honouring the year's top athletes for telling the world he was becoming a woman just months earlier at age 65. In his acceptance speech, Jenner vowed to do whatever he could to reshape the landscape of how transgender people are viewed and treated. Well, the whims of wokeness have worn off and woke folk now hate Caitlyn Jenner. Why? because he said he opposes biological boys who are trans competing in girls' sports in school. Watch this. So there's legislation in various states to ban biological boys who are trans from playing girls' sports in school. What's your opinion on that? This is a question of fairness. That's why I oppose biological boys who are trans competing in girls' sports in school. It just isn't fair and we have to protect girl sports in our but, but, but if now this simply doesn't fit with the identity politics police who demand all people experiencing gender confusion think with precise conformity to radical leftist groupthink so now we all have to hate caitlin twitter blue tick charlotte clymer who defines herself as a writer lesbian veteran and texan with preferred pronouns she and her and hashtag BLM claimed, Caitlyn Jenner is anti-trans. She doesn't understand the science and she is pandering to the ignorance of anti-trans people. I have absolutely no problem saying Caitlyn Jenner supports and directly benefits from transphobia. George Takai, as morally superior as Hillary Clinton, but twice as partisan, said, Caitlyn Jenner is no friend of the LGBTQ community. Don't call her an activist, she's a menace. It's sad, but also hilarious, because the left always eat their own. If you thought a woman scorned was bad, hell hath no fury like a woke mob when an intersectional minority hero deviates one iota from the restraints of identity politics. Celebrated American screenwriter and columnist Bert Prolatsky once said, if leftists didn't have double standards, they wouldn't have any standards at all. And so it is this week as the Labour Green Coalition and the lying harlot media, but I repeat myself, criticised the Morrison government for following the science and the chief medical officer's advice regarding temporary coronavirus restrictions and health directives to keep us all safe, or whatever the chorus is to the song every Labour Premier has sung as they stripped Australians of all God-given freedoms and constitutional rights and liberties since communist dictator Xi Jinping came up with the idea first of locking down citizens in their homes for their own good. Of course, in a free press democratic country like China, they had to weld the doors shut. In a nation with no functionally independent press or political opposition like Australia, 
the citizens were merely convinced by an effective propaganda campaign to cooperate with unlawful public health directives from unelected mid-level bureaucrats. At any rate, there has been no shortage of fawning media complicitness in the closing of state borders and instant homelessness of those unable to return home. All of a sudden, leftists have a standard on closing borders to residents wanting to come home. Can any of these clowns think for themselves? Conservative commentators like me, who have consistently stated freedom is given by God, not governments, are saying, I don't want to say I told you so. I want you to get it right from the beginning instead of swapping liberty for false illusions of safety. It was always ridiculously tyrannical that our own army was deployed to detain Aussies in perfect health at airports on arrival, despite not having committed any crime, to be whisked away to two weeks detention until they were proved healthy. It was at that point that the federal labor talking heads and media elites should have said, what the actual hell is going on here? Not now, more than a year too late. Added to that, there is still no media attention on the fact that the Australian government won't let you leave. Once again, we are a prison island. No one in, no one out, unless you're Tom Hanks. This is something stupid Australians have voted for. The ever-expanding power of the state at the proportionate cost of the ever-reducing liberty God gave every human being. Even many of those who didn't have stupidly regurgitated the government propaganda about being selfish if you want human rights and blah blah science, blah blah experts. The only good government is the smallest one absolutely necessary to stay out of our lives and let us solve for ourselves whatever we can as individuals and voluntary communities. Milton Friedman said, there is nothing so permanent as a temporary government program. When we expect governments to look after us, we give away a little bit of our power, power which government greedily accumulates and hoards and very rarely ever relinquishes. The very least government owes us is the freedom to come and go as we want from our own home, our state, and our nation. Like, just stay out of our lives, get your grubby hand out of our pockets, and leave us alone. As Ronald Reagan once said, The nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. If a citizen is not really sick and not accused of any crime, leave them alone. I've said it from the beginning, quarantine is for sick people. Sure, exclude foreigners from high-risk zones, but if someone wants to leave, there is no valid authority to stop them. Claims of power to do so are fraud perpetuated upon gullible people. Concerns about them returning are easily handled by testing and self-isolation. Breaches of self-isolation are the only place for an authoritarian consequence to be applied which could then result in the more draconian measures being implemented in the last year, a la Xi Jinping. It's unconscionable that our state and federal governments would tell any healthy, innocent, permanent resident they aren't allowed back in. Andrew Cooper, the president of Liberty Works, joined me on the last episode of Not Q&A to discuss their case against the Commonwealth of Australia in the federal court. The link to the episode is also in the show notes beneath this video on goodsource.news. Liberty Works is asking the full bench of the federal court to invalidate the ban on Australians flying overseas. In their view, and mine, the health minister does not have the powers under any legislation to legally enforce such a ban. As many as three in 10 Aussies were born overseas and millions have strong family connections internationally. Tens of thousands of us have been forced to miss out on once-in-a-lifetime events that no one has any right to place an arbitrary measure of importance upon. Our lives are measured by relationships. No one puts their bank account balance on their gravestone or inscribes their joy at spending too much time in the office. The state and federal governments have both caused enormous personal tragedy by coming between families at critically important moments and they continue to multiply trauma and suffering every day the borders, national or state, are closed. The government's position is ridiculous. 
because people leaving the nation actually reduces the risk of viral transmission here by virtue of the fact there are less people here in the community. The government's argument that banning us from leaving so we don't come back infected is an admission of logistical incompetence. At least let people choose if they want to go and not come back. But our health system is so easily capable of bearing the burden of the CCP virus that it has never ever been at risk of being overwhelmed, even at its height. There are countless possible strategies for ensuring infected return travellers are safely quarantined and confirmed healthy before re-entering the community. Pop-up camps and temporary medical facilities should have been constructed within three months of the borders closing last year. And here we are, halfway through the following year, and still the magical National Cabinet is scratching their collective heads like they can't think of anything better than treating everyone like prisoners and lepers. Andrew Cooper said, In short, the various tiers of government in Australia have all the powers needed to protect residents from the international health emergency, and there is no need nor legal basis for restricting people who wish to leave. If Liberty Works wins, the outbound border at least could be open in as little as a few weeks. For more information about their case, visit their website, libertyworks.org.au. Let me tell you about what a frustrated farmer in Belgium has in common with postmodernists who believe almost nothing is worth leaving alone or returning to its traditional position. First, by postmodernism, I mean the attitudes and beliefs that truth claims and value systems are mere social constructs relying entirely on social context and popular attitudes. A closely related or subsequent philosophy is critical theory. Last week I spoke about the ABC viewer who didn't believe in free speech because she considered hurt feelings equivalent to violence. And the conversation about being protected from objective moral truth, which could only happen because postmodernists teach there is no such thing. Instead, they follow Saint Oprah, who teaches there is only your truth and my truth, as opposed to the truth. Postmodernists reject ideas of objective reality, morality, truth, human nature, and even science. Look no further than the unnecessary debate around abortion, only made possible by postmodernism. Instead, they prefer to embrace and promote ideas such as moral relativism, and self-supremacy as the new objective truth. This gives subjective feelings unnatural authority in their minds, which they then seek to impose on others and gives rise to anti-science theories like gender theory and further degrades corrupt ideas like feminist theory. Proverbs 22 verse 28 warned against such progressivism by saying, do not move an ancient boundary stone set up by your ancestors. So what does this have to do with a frustrated farmer? Everything, in that he has perfectly exemplified both the literal and metaphorical meanings of this proverb. Local officials told media a farmer dug a 200-year-old stone marking the border between Belgium and France and moved it about seven feet more than two metres, back into French territory, thereby making the entire country of Belgium bigger and France smaller. Maybe that's a good thing. The stone marker is one of a series placed along the 620 kilometre border under an 1820 treaty. Each weighs between 130 and 270 kilograms, and this one had 1819 carved into its face. There's a funny side to this story, of course. One mayor was happy his village got bigger, but his counterpart on the other side of the boundary perhaps not so much. The poor farmer probably just wanted to make ploughing a little easier with less obstacles to navigate, or maybe he wanted a bigger farm. It doesn't matter though. He failed to stop and think, or take the time to find out why his ancestors had set up that ancient boundary stone. And this, for me, is the fundamental philosophy of conservatism. Sometimes I hear people rhetorically ask, what are conservatives conserving? To make the point invalidly that we're obsessed with pointless traditions or institutions 
which have become outdated and irrelevant. But that's simply not the case. It's a straw man argument and proves nothing by seeming to score a cheap point. One carefully considered paraphrase of Proverbs 22:28 reads, don't cheat your neighbor by moving the ancient boundary markers set up by previous generations. And there's the point of not simply refusing to progress or change anything at all ever, but to very slowly and deliberately consider the original purposes of boundaries, both in land and culture, and the pros and cons of moving or redefining them. You see, the Christian is the best scientist because he doesn't assume chaos, coincidence, and what he observes as the result of millions of iterations of random mutations, but because he starts with the assumption of intelligent design. His experiments and research then ask why, having assumed there must be a purpose for everything. It is lazy and unscientific to simply shrug your shoulders and say, the marvelous complexity of the once unseen world, the gaps in our knowledge are simply explained by macroevolution. Likewise, the Christian is the best sociologist and statesman because he doesn't assume sexuality, gender, marriage, parents and family are merely a social construct simply explained by social evolution and just as simply left behind. The Christian, as well as the conservative, understands that to move the ancient boundary marker set up by previous generations is to cheat your neighbour. You can't invent human rights like homosexual marriage without cheating children of the human right to know and be raised by their married biological parents wherever possible, all other things being equal. You can't invent human rights like abortion without cheating other human beings of the human right to life and freedom from violence. You can't move the ancient boundary of rule of law and due process without cheating your neighbour of the justice they deserve. Sure, you can rationalise the gains you made, but you had to steal from your neighbour to get what you felt was your rights. When you move the ancient boundaries set up around fields and nations or culture, you always make one bigger at the expense of someone else. The Christian West generally, and Australia specifically, has become destinations of choice for people in other nations fleeing racism, persecution, violence, poverty and war because we were established with ancient boundaries around morality, justice and liberty with enormous affection and consideration for God's ways, also known as natural law. There's no direct line from religion in politics to legislated religion, as religion speaks to both our relationship with each other and our relationship with God. Don't confuse the two. Christianity mixes well with codes on how we should treat each other, and in my opinion, there's no better foundation for public policy. Of course, not all religions are equal, and some totally contradict uniquely Christian ideas like universal equality of dignity and actual human rights, loving your enemies, forgiveness and redemption. Wokeism can't even handle those ideas, so politics has much to gain from religion in politics. What is important is to always keep the church government away from the civic government. The idea of legislating religious belief and devotion is a self-defeating idea, just like compulsory generosity. It's not generosity if you have no choice, nor is it genuine faith. But postmodernism is also a self-defeating idea. The argument that there is no truth is itself a truth claim. Therefore, it has to believe there is objective truth before it can claim its beliefs are true. Postmodernism then must be discarded along with its offspring, critical race theory, gender theory, fraudulent claims of the sanctity of feelings, and its logically incoherent attacks on all cultural boundaries. Well, I'm joined now by Chris Attlee, and uh, we're talking about cancel culture a lot in this episode. Chris, welcome to Pillow Talk. Good to be here, Dave. Now, one of the things that's annoyed me 
for some time, and, and most the most recent example uh, has been when I, I came across some LGBTIQAX plus activist uh, shrill person um, basically having a go at swear word, swear word, swear word, right ring, right wing, swear word, swear word people who were wanting Magda Shabansky to have some kind of consequence for her misogynistic, Christophobic, bigoted comments against uh, Jenny Morrison. Uh, and he was essentially saying, we're being hypocritical because we also don't like cancel culture. Now, what I pointed out to him was that not every criticism of a public figure is or amounts to cancel culture. In my mind, cancel culture is that extreme phenomenon where somebody who wants to present an uh, or has been invited to present awards at, at the Oscars or, or some other award ceremony, has a tweet dragged up from 10 years ago, which has no bearing on who that person is or the, the body of their work since then, uh, and they apologise for it. it. It might be completely benign or, or relatively benign, a, a product of, of the decade, 90s, uh, where things weren't so... Well, that wasn't a decade ago, but um, it, you You're know what I'm saying. They they want to completely erase that person from history. They want to take all of their previous work offline, everything they've ever produced, and then stop them from ever working again, no matter how repentant they are, no matter how much they've matured since then, no matter how explainable that was by context or immaturity of, of being, you know, 19 or 22 and uh, at, at the time. Uh, and, and I'm... What I pointed out to him was, no, that that is cancel culture, not the criticism of everything or demanding repentance or consequences for present-day actions. Uh, and the big difference with Magda is we haven't asked Uber to drop her ads and and cancel her because she, you know, promotes Uber Eats in, in some ads with Kim Kardashian. We haven't asked for Kath and Kim to be taken off all streaming services or, or Babe, the movie that she, um, you know, did some voice artistry for. And we haven't said she can never work again. And the other thing that's relevant is she hasn't apologised. She doesn't think she's done anything wrong. So criticism of her and her place uh, on a platform today, I think completely uncomparable to the phenomenon we see of cancel culture. What are your thoughts? Are we are we defining cancel culture too widely now and making it mean anything? I think cancel culture is defined by certain people when it's convenient for them. Um, so the second that um, any criticism and, and rightful criticism to, is thrown to people like Magda Zabansky, all of a sudden... They play the victim card. It's she's the victim, not not the person that she criticised, not the horrible comments that she made. All of a sudden, she becomes the victim, and there's no apology, nothing, and it's just oh look at all these nasty right wing people trying to cancel me. Now, okay, her show, The Weakest Link, got put back. I'll be honest, I didn't even realise that The Weakest Link was back on with her hosting it until I heard that um, you know until it was sort of brought up on on a current affair when she was doing the or instead of doing the apology, doing the um, you know turning herself into the victim. So there, there is a big yeah. difference. And, and look, as far as this whole, it's very, very convenient um, for one side of, of politics, and it is one side that is doing the cancelling. And, I mean, you look at someone like Gina Carano. Um, Gina Carano made some, you know, put out some tweets. I, I didn't necessarily agree with, um, well, I didn't disagree with it. I, I you know, it's, uh, it wouldn't have been something I, I would have tweeted. But by the same token, her, her co-star in The Mandalorian, um, Pablo, and I can't think of his last name, uh, pa Pablo Pascal, he has made similar tweets but on the other side of politics. Now, what happens right. is he gets a pat on the back and, and look, what a, look what a champion he is. She gets cancelled. And when we say cancelled, she has, you know, it's, she's sacked by Disney, sacked from the TV show The Mandalorian, the show that was being developed with her in mind. All of a sudden, she's gone. Now, she is someone who is, I mean, the, the left want to point to, you know, they want all these, um, you know, powerful women in shows. She is someone who is actually a powerful woman. You see Gina Carano, and she's not like some of these these five-foot, you know, skinny women that are going up against the seven. She could, she could genuinely, if, if I ran into Gina Carano, she would genuinely um, cause 
most men pain because she's actually a trained fighter. So mm. to cancel someone like her who is exactly MMA, right? for, yeah, MMA fighter. She fought in the in the UFC. So she's she's the genuine article. So when she's throwing, you know, with other Mandalorians or or you know, evil Imperial forces down, she could actually do that. And and that's that's one of the big differences. But you see something like that and they, they just cancel it. It was that was it. She she said something that, that wasn't you know, it wasn't in line or, you know, she offended this group by by making making a joke that wasn't even really I mean, she put her her Twitter pronouns as beep bop boop. Okay. And, and that's not having a go at, at anyone in, in the trans community. That's having a go at all the people who like to virtue signal. Um, yeah. with you know, when they're obvious I mean, it's I am obviously a man. I'm not going to put Twitter like pronouns in my Twitter bio because that would be ridiculous. Yep. If you can't work out I'm a man, well, that's your problem. Um, yeah. Now, if for some reason I decide to identify in a different way, okay, well, then it would be appropriate. But that's who she was having a go at. And with these people who do who love their cancel culture, what you've got to understand is it's never about the issue. It's about them. It's about them virtue signaling, look at me, look how I'm taking a stand. It's egotistical. These people are egotistical. It is egotistical, and and that's, I think that's the perfect word uh, to describe the motivation for cancel culture. They can't stand somebody else with an opinion being in the same intellectual space as them. Uh, Especially it's not an opinion that can, that conforms to their worldview. You know, it has to be right. everyone must think the same as them or, or else, you know, especially all these people who call themselves free thinkers and, you know, it's you've got to look at all these issues. You've, you know, be a free thinker, you know, don't just follow the, don't conform. They want everyone to conform to their worldview. They want everyone to conform to their way of thinking. And it's rubbish. It's rubbish. It's, you, you can't have, I don't think you'd have real intellectual growth unless you're listening to both sides. Now, I'm certainly, I certainly sit on the right. There, there's absolutely no no question about that. But I'll enjoy having a conversation with someone who sits on the complete opposite side of, of politics to me because it's interesting. It's very rare that we'll end up agreeing, but at least at the end of it, I can say, okay, well, I understand where you're coming from. I understand what your point of view is. Mm. You haven't changed my mind, but that's okay. That's the great thing about democracy. It's There's a lot of different ideas, different thoughts that get thrown in, and hopefully, and theoretically, it should work out. So, Chris, quite often we see all uh, Australian pioneers, settlers, governors, etc., explorers uh, being cancelled. Statues should be pulled down and, and we should apologise for... It seems like chronological snobbery, that we just think uh, we've arrived and nobody before us uh, had any virtue or knowledge uh, whatsoever. What are your thoughts on... I guess cancel culture's attack on Australian history. It's it's ridiculous, especially when you look at some of the figures they want to cancel. Um, Captain Cook and Arthur Phillip are the two main examples. Now they're people who are revered throughout Australian history because they're people. Whether you agree with what happened two hundred and thirty years ago or not, they are people who had a big impact. Now, when you look at Arthur Phillip, Arthur Phillip came out here and he had the attitude of making friends and 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 working with the natives to to understand them and he even to the point where he actually had a native who i say natives indigenous australian who they they did capture two of them um but what they did was they wanted they brought them back to understand and and one of them actually chose to to stay and to continue to live um in the in the early colony now at one point, he did go back and, and live with um, his, his tribe. But then actually, when they, they ran into um, Philip and another group, he actually made the decision that he quite liked the um, the European way of life. And he, he came back and and um, near, uh, near Benelong Point. Um, um, but there's, there's a lot of a lot of interesting things that you'll find in Australian history. Um, a, a great example, and it, it's it's an analogy that I really like. Um, back in the 1970s, they uh, they found where uh, they thought the that Australia had, or New South Wales had been declared as a colony. And there's a, on Loftus Street, there's a big, um, you know, well, not a big, but there's a monument saying this is where it was declared. Anyway, years later, they found a, a bunch of diaries that indicated that, no, that wasn't the point. And they found where 
the, the colony of New South Wales was actually declared and there's actually a public toilet there now. So uh, where, where Australia was essentially declared, there's a public, there's a public toilet um, sitting wow. there. It's, there's quite a, lot, quite a lot of our history that we don't know. Lydia um, Thorpe would be delighted, I'm sure. Oh, look, she can burn it down. We can put a nice monument there. It'll, it'll be great. Um, but, look, there, there are some figures throughout Australian history who I would say weren't as kind as others. Um, there, there's certainly some who I wouldn't say cancel them because I, I don't think we should cancel historical figures. Um, I think we should um, recognise the, the reality of, of what happened. I mean, you know, it's, we're not going to cancel Genghis Khan, are we? Um, you know, he he was probably one of the, the bloodiest butchers in in history. Um, you know, the the you know the, the Romans. You know, it's for all the culture they gave us. They weren't always the uh, the nicest. Even the Athenians, they were always going to war with with someone. Yeah, you know, it's, these it's are the foundations. Yeah. So so that you know, I think we need to understand our history better. Um, and you don't understand history just by cancelling things. We can't imagine that Captain Cook didn't come here in seventeen seventy. Now, and, and what people don't know about Cook is Cook didn't recommend that Australia was settled. That was actually Joseph Banks who who pushed that and, and realistically he probably pushed it because it, it put him in a nice position of power as a consultant back in England. But Cook didn't recommend um, Australia as a potential um, settlement and that's why when they, they got to Botany Bay with the First Fleet they discovered that it probably wasn't the best place to... Um, to build a colony. I mean, they, okay. they didn't even have Sydney Harbour in mind for, for where the settlement, the alternate settlement would be. It was actually up towards Gosford. Um, that's where they thought the best inlet would be. And just by chance, they thought, well, we'll sail into what is now Sydney Harbour and discovered the, the greatest harbour in the world. Um, sorry, I, I really do go off, off track when it comes to, to history. No, I'm, um, I'm always fascinated by historical um, tangents. Happy to indulge those rabbit trails. <laughs> well, don't, don't encourage me too much. Um all right, bad. Don't do it again. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll stop. But I guess the the, the point. What about Governor the, Macquarie? Governor Macquarie was horrible, um, to put it to put it bluntly. Um, he had a, a long running feud with with John MacArthur. He he really just didn't like John MacArthur. But Macquarie is responsible for what's known as the Appen Massacre, um, which is is one of the one darkest. Of the things that has ever happened in, in Australian history, and it's something that's not taught. Um, what had happened was um, some Indigenous settlers had... or sorry, um, Indigenous settlers. Some Indigenous Australians had stumbled upon some settlers who had a sheep. They took the sheep. Um, as a result, the, the settler went and, and shot a couple of the um, Indigenous people for revenge for stealing a sheep. So the Indigenous... A few of the Indigenous people went back and defended themselves and, and killed a few of the, the settlers that, that were there. Um, so Macquarie's response to that, to teach the Indigenous people a lesson, was to basically eliminate that entire tribe. That all the women, the children, they were all basically held at gunpoint and either shot or forced off a cliff um, in oh, um, what, what is now Appen in New South Wales, which isn't too far from where I live. Um, there is, there's a memorial to the Appen massacre there. It's... It's a sad part of our history. It truly, truly is. And I don't think by any, I don't think by that time's standard that was acceptable in any way. That was, that was a man who clearly crossed or obviously crossed a number of boundaries. Um, certainly wouldn't be acceptable by today. So he would be a war criminal by today's standards. And I would argue that he would be a war criminal by the standards back then. But because he was so isolated, he's, you know, what, what, hope of punishment he was he was basically running the colony as a as a dictatorship until someone came and took over from him um so i think someone like macquarie i don't think we cancel you can't cancel because he is a historical figure um, this is the important question what to do with with him and things named I, after him and statues etc I, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't revere it I, I wouldn't be look if they wanted to um Rename a, a suburb like Macquarie Fields, for instance, is quite close to Appen and where the Appen Massacre. If the people of, of that suburb wanted to rename, I wouldn't be against that. I so, something like that. Um, you know, I, look, and, and, and you know, here's here's the thing I would encourage listeners to do is um, we can't be guilty of the opposite position, closed mindedness. 
Um, and just, you know, because we hate cancel culture, well, therefore any suggestion of renaming must automatically be wrong. Let's, let's be against cancel culture. But if there's a good case put forward, let's be able to consider it. And maybe we're going to reject most of the cases that are put forward because they're not good. Um, I, I'm not saying we should embrace sometimes to prove we're not closed-minded. Um, but let's genuinely look at this. Like, I, I'm quite sure I didn't know how bad Captain uh, Governor Macquarie was. Um, I, I know generally lots of bad things happened, but the, the actual details of, of who did what, when, and what's exaggerated by so-called oh, yeah. truth-telling uh, and what's reliable, actual, objective history... Um, you know, these are the harder things to sort out. And so I want to keep an open mind to have um, well, credible sources inform my opinion on, on each decision. So, yeah. What um, you've got to understand, though, is all, all these people who want to cancel, you know, historical figures, they've got no understanding of Australian history. They don't understand. They, they wouldn't know about things like the Appen Massacre, which would be a great argument for them. They, they don't know that uh, the reason yeah. that Manly Cove is called Manly is because Arthur Phillip was so impressed with uh, the strength and how manly the Indigenous people look that that's why it's called Manly because he, wow. he just thought I didn't they were... Know that. That, that's why it's called Manly because he thought they were just the most manly-looking people. Like they were just... They, he thought they were just wonderful physical specimens of people. That's wow. not the attitude of someone who hates... That's right. the attitude, you know, and he had um, orders to work with the indigenous or the local community to or the local um, people who inhabited the land to you know to basically integrate, um, which once again wasn't necessarily the best thing for the indigenous community. But the yep. reality is, if it wasn't the English, it would have been the French or the Portuguese. That was what was happening back in that period of time. Yeah. That's, well, that's certainly, I, I think I think what, you know, chronological snobbery is how C.S. Lewis puts it, but I think what we need is chronological humility where mm. we actually say, yes, there's, um, you know, plenty of things that we can say we have evolved and have matured from attitudes that, that really weren't suitable for uh, the, the best conditions for human flourishing. But now let's be humble and actually have a look at our attitudes. What things could we grow through and grow beyond that we currently think are socially acceptable? Um, you know, maybe there's some standards that have been thrown away and discarded, which were actually really useful. Uh, maybe there's some ideas that we've never had before, which which we need to grow into. Um, well, I, I would hope that in 200 years, people aren't looking back on videos like this and judging me off whatever the standard is in 200 years, because for a start, we don't know what... you've got to know it's possible. We, we, we've got to know it's possible, don't we? And and, and that's, it's that humble posture instead of the toxic arrogance of so many wokedivists um, yeah. that, that think they've arrived and they're morally superior to anybody alive now or, or ever. Mm. Um and, and but they're, like, they're this, this wonderful enlightened class and no one else can understand but mm. them. And, and, you know, they, they shall punish anyone who, who thinks differently. Yep. It's, it's, it's a joke. Um, but, and, and, I mean, it's not, only, it's not only our side that they do it to. They do it to themselves. A, a great example recently, um, Richard Dawkins. Now, Richard Dawkins, um, I, th I think most people would have heard of Richard Dawkins. He put out a, a, a tweet um, and, and I'll, I'll read the tweet um, word for word. It was, in 2015, Rachel Dolezal, a white chapter president of NAACP, was vilified for identifying as black. Some men choose to identify as women. Some women choose to identify as men. You'll be vilified if you deny that they literally are what they are or what they identify as. Discuss. Now, that's something that Dawkins being an academic, he's put out a... I think he's actually made a, a fair point because I think... Um, you know, if, if people, if you're going to accept that people will identify in a certain way and, and that should be accepted, well, where do you draw the line? I mean, it's either a libertarian value or, or it's not. Um, now, for me, uh, look, frankly, it's uh, Rachel Dolezal. I think that, um, you know, the work she was doing was was beneficial for, for the African-American community. Um, she wasn't African-American. She was slightly darker skinned and 
you know, that that's how she you know, had frizzy hair and, and passed as and very fake tan, wasn't she? No, she was actually um she actually did have darker like they, they showed pictures of her when she was younger next to her siblings and she was a lot darker than than them and her hair was. I think she fake tanned on top of natural extra oh, of course, darkness. Of course she did. Yeah, of course she right, did. Right, 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 yeah. Now I'm in I, I'm an atheist, um, so or, or you know I consider myself part of the, the secular community. So um, you know I, I follow a, a lot of what's going on there. But the, the problem is in the US in particular, the the secular movement um, and, and the atheist movement in particular have been taken over by the ultra ultra woke um, left. They, they've for years they've just sort of been infiltrating it and, and putting their people in positions now. In response to this tweet, the American Humanist Association decided to cancel Richard Dawkins. Oh. Now, how did they do this? They stripped him of his Humanist of the Year award, not from any time recently, but from 1996. They cancelled a 25-year-old award that they'd given to him because they didn't like a tweet. Now, his tweet is not in any way transphobic. It's a tweet that's put out there asking a question and using two examples to say, basically say, what's the difference? Let's discuss. The guy is a professor. He, he teaches at high-level um, universities throughout the world. I'm not sure if it's Cambridge or, or Oxford. I know it's, it's one of the two. Um, he would, it would not be uncommon for him to put a question like this and then say, discuss. That's how he operates. Unfortunately for him, he did it on Twitter, which is the cesspool of, of humanity as we know. Hey, if, if there's one thing I really don't want judged in the future, I really don't. Um, I don't want our era now defined by what's on Twitter because anyone in the future who's wow. watching Twitter's yeah. not. Really. But the problem is, he he did do a, a quick backtrack and and sort of you know kowtow a bit to them and said, oh no, I, I don't want bigots in the uh, Republican bigots um, exploiting this. Um, I think that the first part of his response is right. It's been misconstrued, and you know he doesn't yep. like that it's been misconstrued and, and used for whatever. Um, but yeah, it's then he, I think he sort of lost me with the whole um, kowtowing and all the Republican bigots. I mean, he's not American for a start. It's you know, it's yeah, very, very, very um, pop culture. Partisan there, Gad mm. Saad had a good response to his uh, his hat tip to wokeism. Um, is J.K. Rowling a Republican bigot? Is Jordan Peterson a Republican bigot? What about Abigail Schreier? Mm. Is the astoundingly brilliant and supremely handsome Gad Saad a Republican bigot? Focus man, stop the political tribalism. Um, yeah. And that's and, exactly and that's what spot that on. was. That's spot on. And, and I mean, J.K. Rowling. There's another example of someone who's being cancelled. Yeah. Completely cancelled just because she wouldn't go along with with the group thing. She had a different opinion. Now I don't necessarily agree with a lot of her opinions, but no. um, well, I mean, she's on a. And, and here's the thing about cancel culture: so is is if you ever uh, like me having a bunch of Proud Boys at an event I once hosted uh, about corporate virtue signalling. Uh, and they paid a fee to come along. I was in a selfie with them, and one of them was doing the okay gesture to troll leftists, and mm. it worked brilliantly. <laughs> it's like uh, if you ever were seen in any way associating with someone who disagrees with leftists, then you are obviously fully endorsing, embracing, and regurgitating everything they believe or ever have done and or ever will do post-dated <laughs> it's but amazing in, how, in, in, amazing in how a photo from me oh, yeah. two years ago with a couple of guys at my event somehow tied me to um proud boys in the donald trump election you know in january it's like come off it people but, but what you've got to understand in the defense of the left they all think the same so they just assume everyone else thinks the same too <laughs> you know they, they've got one line of thought and they must not stray from that so so maybe they just can't comprehend the fact that you and I can yeah. sit here, and and, and look, we're, that, we're on. That's the nature of identity yeah. politics. It's. Um, I mean, look, you and I, we're on the same side of politics, but I can guarantee there'll be things we disagree on. I can yeah. absolutely guarantee. I mean, it's. Well, I mean, just my religious stance for a start, but that doesn't mean we can't have 
a dialogue. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to stand in a photo with you. And it doesn't mean that I think, oh, you disagree with me. You must be cancelled at all costs. You must think the same as me. Other, you know, there there yep. is no other way. It's, yeah, we can have right. conversations. Yeah, that's right. And, and I've had other photos on Twitter with abortionists, abortion mm -hmm. apologists. Uh, and, and it's like, hey, we're having a conversation. Clearly, we disagree on some really fundamental moral issues. Uh, and yet we still are able to have civil and sincere conversations around and about our differences. Um, so Look, this, 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 this cancel culture association is just yeah. so intellectually lazy. So I'm, I'm a, a huge NRL fan. I'm a, I'm a Dragons fan through and through. And as a result, I hate the Cronulla Sharks. There's a photo of me with Paul Gallen, who was the captain of the Cronulla Sharks for years. That doesn't mean all of a sudden I'm endorsing his football team. You know, mm -hmm. there's... I, I, I've met people from from the Greens, you know. I, I mean, I stood at the last election. There's there's a photo of, of a number of us who were, were standing in the same seat um, or you know within the same area. That doesn't mean that I endorse those people's view. It just means we're in a photo together. It means we may have been at the same event together. Yep. So what? Yeah. Well, we we meant to just shun everyone who thinks differently. According to the left, that's what they think. Yeah. Yeah. There's a big difference between. Uh, Look, I, I don't mean to backslap ourselves, but I, I think it's true and therefore needs to be said uh, that there's an intellectual honesty. Um, you know, I, I was about to say of the right, there's an intellectual honesty which is lacking on the left, and, and that's just not a fair categorisation either because there are so many people on our side who are not. They're just lazy, uh, and this is part of why I do what I do. I want to speak to my tribe and say, let's do better, let's be better informed. I, I know I've criticised some conservative uh, or even far-right politicians, really. Not, not I can criticise conservatives all the time. Don't get in trouble for that. But when I criticise a far-right politician, um, my own followers accuse me of reading too much ABC News as if I can't form a critical opinion independently. Um, and it's like, hello, have you ever met me before? Um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm struggling to think that uh, you would watch the ABC except for um, better material. Um, fodder, that's right. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe, maybe Bluey, although, well, and, you know, there's, there's another example. Bluey, my, youngest, my youngest has his driver's licence. We don't watch Bluey. <laughs> and really we do need to start standing up against this more. I think, I think we all have a responsibility. Otherwise, in 20 years, yeah. um, there's not going to be any recognisable entertainment. No, and. And we'll sit back and look at times like this and go, we really should have done something. Yeah. Chris Adley, thank you for your thoughts on cancel culture. Thank you very much. So that's it from me this week. This is the second episode in the new format where I'm not so concerned about publishing on a fixed schedule as much as I am with doing more preparation and promotion with smaller clips on social media after the episode is broadcast. Let me know what you think. If you enjoyed this episode, please help me by sharing each of the clips as they're released. Longer clips will be on Facebook, shorter clips on Twitter, where they have to be kept under two minutes, 20 seconds, uh, and scheduled Instagram videos need to be done in under a minute. If you've got a question you'd like me to answer, friendly or hostile, shoot me an email at davidgoodsource.news and I'll do my best to include it in the next episode. A special thank you to the Good Source supporters and my personal partners who are helping disrupt the abusive power of the lying harlot media and to better inform and articulate common sense along with ancient wisdom not of our invention. Would you like to help? Head to goodsource.news and click on the support button. There are no paywalls, but with your help we can not only continue, but grow this community service and fight fake news together. If not now, then It's time for us to do something. Not, not, not.